millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Robert Harris on his new novel, Act of Oblivion. Robert Harris is the author of 14 best-selling novels, The Cicero Trilogy, Imperium, Lustrum and Dictator, Fatherland, Enigma, Archangel, Pompeii, The Ghost, The Fear Index, An Officer and a Spy, which won four prizes, including the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction, Conclave, Munich, The Second Sleep and V2. His work has been translated into 40 languages and he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. And today we're going to be talking about Robert's latest book, which is Act of Oblivion. Robert, welcome to Little Atoms. Pleasure. Nice to be with you. I guess, first of all, we should talk about what the Act of Oblivion of the title is. The Act of Oblivion was a parliamentary act passed in the summer of 1660 uh, when Charles II came to the throne, marking the end of the experiment of the 11-year republic in England. And the Act of Oblivion basically cancelled all kind of uh, crimes against uh, the king, taking up arms against the king. It was the 17th century equivalent of truth and reconciliation legislation. The only exception to this general pardon and amnesty uh, was anyone who had had a hand in the execution of Charles I, and they were required to hand themselves in. Okay, so bearing that in mind then, how would you describe this novel? The novel is about uh, is based on the true story, which was the hunt for all the regicides, as they were called, who either signed the death warrant of Charles I, 59 men had signed it in uh, 1642, of whom just over 30 were still alive when Charles II came to the throne, and the judges, um, there were more than 100 judges of Charles I at his trial, all those were to be hunted down. It was called the greatest manhunt of the 17th century. And um, I invented the man who kind of coordinated the hunt. We don't know who that person was, but I kind of invented the figure. And so it's basically about him and in particular about two regicides who he goes after, real figures, father-in-law and son-in-law, Colonel Edward Wally or Whaley and Colonel William Goff. 
and they fled to New England and were on the run in New England for more than a decade. So we'll come back to those two figures in a moment. First of all, and it just so happens to be particularly topical when we're talking about Charles's on the throne, but um, why is Charles II back on the throne? What's happened to that experiment of the Republic? Why did it end? Well, it ended because it depended upon the personality of Oliver Cromwell. It was on Cromwell's wishes that they cut off the king's head, as he put it, with a crown still upon it, i.e. they didn't just get rid of Charles I because they didn't trust him and because they thought there'd never be peace as long as Charles I was on the throne. They got rid of the throne itself. They weren't even going to do a deal with a moderate kind of successor which was fine, except that they discovered that people didn't want to follow parliamentary committees. There was no central authority in the state. And in the end, Oliver Cromwell stepped in. And because even if you hated him, he was nevertheless a formidable figure. People were frightened of him and respected him. The country held together. But when he died, quite young, in 1658, things rapidly unraveled. And it was um, General Monk who commanded the army in Scotland. He decided to take matters into his own hands and invited Charles, the son of Charles, back onto the throne. So uh, we moved into a new phase of monarchy, which was the Restoration period. And, And my novel, really, it starts in 1660, and it's about what followed the Civil War. So Edward Wally and William Gough, the two main protagonists that uh, your invented protagonist, who we'll talk about in a little while, is chasing. Tell us something more about who they were. And although obviously the the novel starts post-Civil War, maybe also tell us something about the part they had played. Yeah, sure. Well, Edward Wally, or Whaley, as I think he may probably be called, because his coat of arms was three spouting whales, I wish I'd realised that at the time, as I wouldn't have worried so much about lines of dialogue saying, where's Wally? He was uh, Cromwell's cousin. He was about the same age as Cromwell, i.e. born around 1600. So he's 60 years old at the start of the novel. And Whaley was from a a wealthy family that had fallen on hard times. He um, knew Cromwell extremely well. He must have done. They were at Cambridge at the same time. And when Cromwell raised his regiment to fight the king in 1642, he had five troops of cavalry and he gave command of one of them to his cousin, Edward, even though Edward had never fought in a war, nor had Cromwell for that matter. And uh, Whaley uh, was gifted soldier, proved to be, like Cromwell himself. And the two rose together and he became a colonel Uh, He was in charge of the king for a while. The king was captured by the army and um, Cromwell put his cousin in charge of his custody for about eight months. And uh, when Cromwell became Lord Protector, his cousin lived in the house next door to him in, in Whitehall and was effectively in charge of his personal security. For what we know of Whaley, he was a moderate He was quite a fancy dresser, though Levellers didn't like that. He opposed Cromwell's punitive expedition to Ireland. So he was, you know, generally a more easier to understand figure. His son-in-law was a different kettle of fish. Uh, William Gough was the son of a radical preacher. He was 20 years younger than Whaley, so he was 
about 40 at the time of the novel starts. He had been a radical in the army and he had spoken at the Putney debates and we still have his speeches and you can see he was a mystic. He claimed visions of Christ and God and what they should do with the king and he was always in favour of the abolition of the monarchy. And so these two, seeing the return of um, the Stuart dynasty, took to their heels rather wisely and took ship to uh, New England. And we know quite a lot of what followed because Gough, the younger man, kept a diary. We don't have much of the diary left, but sufficient of it survived for us to have a lot of the dates of where they went and when. And they hid in barns and attics and cellars and lived out in the open. And so it's an extraordinary story of survival with a posse on their heels and a reward on their heads. And they had to travel hundreds of miles on foot across New England to try and survive. So they're very interesting for a novelist, the relationship between a father-in-law and a son-in-law on the run, one with one set of political views, another with a slightly different set. So they are being hunted. And I saw them, to put it crudely, as a kind of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid of Puritan England and um, Ned and Will. They're on the run. As the novel starts, they are already escaped to the new world. A lot of other people that are on that regicide list basically just handed themselves in, presuming that the, the king was going to be merciful. And you describe in rather vivid detail what happens to some of those men that are tried and executed. Tell us, tell us how they went about that in those days. Well, yeah, so there were, I mean, I can't remember now precisely how many, 50, 60 men wanted. Their names were published. They had been judges or signed the king's death warrant. They were required to hand themselves in. A half or more took to their heels, fled to the continent, to Holland. Uh, Germany, Switzerland. Uh, the two that I follow fled to New England. Some hid in London. Some took refuge in the country. Some did as was asked and handed themselves in. This was a mistake uh, because there was not to be much mercy. The only way of avoiding the very gruesome death of being hanged, drawn and quartered uh, was to confess your guilt, acknowledge the legitimacy of the king and if you did that, then you got life imprisonment. But life imprisonment was very unpleasant, and I don't think any of them were ever released. They died in jail and kept out of you know, the light in dungeons, and it was a grim fate. And some of them were paraded on the anniversary of the king's execution every year with ropes around their neck and taken to Tyburn and made to stand under the scaffold with blood smeared on their faces. So it was a grim retribution. And for those who were who didn't confess their guilt, who pleaded not guilty, they were all found guilty, or pretty well all, and they suffered public execution in a very uh, unpleasant fashion. I mean, uh, people will say that the book is very graphic about their fate. I, I suppose it is. I felt I had to say that. But it's only a paragraph. I mean, but I think it's so gruesome that it sticks in everybody's mind. You also talk in the book about how there's a number of people who were been quite significant figures in the Commonwealth who, because of the Act of Oblivion, had been able to move seamlessly into the new regime. And indeed, some of those people are even there taking part in the hunt for these regicides. Yes. I mean, I was very interested in the procedural aspects. I mean, that's one of the things I enjoy as a writer. 
So when I decided to invent this man on their tail, I thought, who would he have been? Where might he have been? There must have been someone like that who intercepted the mail, stopped the ports, found out the name of the judges, turned out all the old documents, interrogated people. And I think he would have been the clerk in my novel. He's the clerk or the secretary to the regicide committee, subcommittee of the Privy Council. And on that committee seemed to have sat two prominent lawyers who'd served under Cromwell. It was their good fortune that they weren't actually involved in the execution of the king. And they demonstrated a degree of zeal in hunting down their former comrades, as indeed did uh, Sir George Downing, who had been Cromwell's ambassador to Holland. And he occupied the same role under Charles II, showing his kind of survivability. And he lured some of his former comrades into a trap, and three of them were hung, drawn and quartered. So, you know, it's a great political story of retribution, um, expediency and ambition. And at the same time, it has a direct relevance to us today because the Civil War helped forge this country, helped forge the, the modern world in many ways. And the act of oblivion, which gives my novel its title, was a very sophisticated piece of legislation, actually. These people were hunted down, but everybody else, including the family of Cromwell, Richard and Henry Cromwell, both senior figures, they were left alone. And this was the beginning of the kind of compact between Parliament and the King, which we've seen played out in recent days in the language of the 17th century that paved the way for the stability and constitutional settlement in this country, which helped us become this very powerful nation. And we didn't go through the upheaval of the French Revolution, which happened 150 years later, let alone the Russian Revolution 250 years later. We kind of sorted things out. So this is a crucial period. And, you know, we do concentrate a lot on the Tudors and the Nazis. I've done, I've certainly done the Nazis myself and rather overlooked the Civil War period, which was so crucial to what our country became. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Robert Harris, and we're talking about his book, Act of Oblivion. And Robert, I want us to, to start the second half looking at Richard Naylor, who is the, um, the invented character that you've mentioned. But before we do, most of the other people in the novel, down to quite minor characters, are real people. Tell us something about how you went about researching some of the some of the less well-known figures in the book. Well, the novel came about because I just happened to catch a glimpse, I think it was on Twitter, of this phrase, the greatest manhunter of the 17th century. And the, I just thought that sounded very intriguing as a concept. And I discovered it was the hunt for the regicides. And I thought that that would make a good story. And I thought that I could invent the man who was hunting the regicides and just show a procedural of how he would go about it. And that would be a thrilling story. And then I needed to um, choose a couple of the regicides to focus on. And this father-in-law and son-in-law, Wally and Whaley and Goff, seemed the logical choice. And of course, those two real characters and, and Naylor, my fictional character, they swim through this world of minor figures, fellow regicides, governors in New England of Massachusetts, Connecticut, and the colony then of New Haven, of preachers, of people who protect them, of men on their tail, and bigger figures like Sir Edward Hyde, later Earl of Clarendon, who was the Lord Chancellor, who presided over, in the end, he was the ultimate authority below the king of the hunt for the regicides. And why, you know, there was no need to invent these people, they all existed. And that is what gives me a kind of frisson when I write the book that I, or this and other books like An Officer and a Spy, for instance, that virtually everyone in it is real, but I can find some perspective uh, that enables these characters to come alive, hopefully, seen through the eyes of fictional characters or the characters like Whaley and Goff that I decide to focus on. It means a lot of research and a lot of kind of dry and dusty research, which I then try to discard. My great advantage in this novel is that it's a chase. One of the great kind of plot devices in in literature is the chase, and and this is that. Will they get away? And you naturally sympathise with these two characters as they flee across New England. So Richard Naylor, tell us something about who he is and, and what is motivating him to chase down these two men. I've decided that this figure would be, as I say, work for the Privy Council. And, um, you know, once you do that, for instance, you then get where he would probably have gone to the office, rather like Pepys going to the Admiralty Board. This figure would have gone to the Palace of Whitehall, to the Privy Council officers. We know he would have reported to Clarendon. I imagined him as someone, well, I tell you when I invented him, John Evelyn in his diaries describes the Christmas of 1657, when he was attending a Christmas uh, mass, illegal Christmas mass on the Strand in the chapel of one of the big private houses, when the doors burst open, in poured musketeers uh, to be followed not long afterwards by these two colonels, Colonel Whaley and Colonel Goff, who arrested everyone there, including John Evelyn. He was eventually let go, but some of them were taken off to jail. And when I came across that story, when I was researching, I thought, right, I will put my regicide hunter in that congregation. He is arrested by Whaley and Goff, and he is sitting next to his pregnant wife. And the shock of him being dragged away because he protests at their treatment is enough to make her miscarry. So years later, 
three years later, when he gets the chance and he's offered a job, he elects to go and uh, take this position, hunting down the regicides, and he has a particular animus against these two. And I enjoyed writing this character. He is both alarming and frightening in his zeal to hunt them down, ruthless, but at the same time, I think you understand why he feels as he does. And through his eyes, we see the execution of Charles I. And he's one of those who dips his handkerchief in the blood of the martyred king and vows vengeance. So it's an old, age-old story of a man uh, seeking vengeance, whatever the cost. So let's talk about the America that Naylor finds when he embarks on his quest. It's very, very early in the life of America. There's just a, a few sort of putative colonies in in New England and a bit further down the coast. What does this place look like when he arrives? Well, it's a vast land being opened up at the fringes around Boston uh, in Massachusetts. It looks quite sophisticated. He's quite surprised by the brick-built houses and churches, the forts with their guns. And just across the Charles River in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the oldest part of Harvard College has already been built to train priests for the Puritan ministry. Uh, so the fringe looks very quite sophisticated. But then when you try to penetrate across this opening up wilderness, then, you know, it's a different story. Uh, Whaley and Goff pitched up in, um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the summer of 1660 when they fled the Restoration stayed there for about six months and then had to run. And they ran westwards, 160 miles, trekking in in midwinter to the Connecticut River and then moved south to New Haven. There were about 30,000 English settlers in New England at this time, and they were in tiny, isolated, they called them towns, but they were barely even villages of 50 or 100 houses, most of them. New Haven was larger. New Haven was presided over by the Reverend Davenport, a kind of a fearsome preacher, kind of cult leader almost, who believed in Mosaic law, the law of Moses, a very strict interpretation of the Bible. And the town of uh, New Haven was, was built according to the precepts to be found in the Old Testament of what a town should look like. So they ended up there. And um, Naylor pursues them with a posse, a real-life posse, real-life characters we know existed, across New England, trying to catch them. And on the way, it enabled me to describe, both from the point of view of those who are being hidden and the man who was trying to find them, what America was like at that time. And without forcing it, one became aware that this is the DNA of modern America, that the kind of um, ferocious uh, importance of the Bible and Christian fundamentalism in American politics starts here, that you can see in Prohibition, which still exists in a few towns in New England to this day, and in indeed in more recent political developments like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, guaranteeing the rights to abortion federally that you can see the biblical influence still in modern-day America. So it was fascinating to describe this landscape, virgin forest, virgin kind of parkland it must have looked like, the great wide Connecticut River, the teeming fish, the deserted plains, the Indian settlements, and already the 
simmering resentment starting from these Native Americans who started to realise they'd been cheated out of their land, or if not cheated, they hadn't appreciated the people they were letting into their country. So all this is uh, in embryo. It was fantastic to write that. I wanted to write a different sort of novel about the English Civil War and, and do it from the perspective of New England. And it's also fascinating to see that under under what authority Naylor is pursuing these men in the New World, because while not even all of them, I mean, obviously not all of America, but even all of what is settled is a British colony because, you know, the Dutch are obviously in what would become New York, New Amsterdam. But we already have these Puritan colonies that are setting themselves up in opposition to what's going on back in the home country. So it's, it's tense as he, as he proceeds, because he never knows who's going, to, who's going to be helpful and who isn't. Yes, a lot of the settlers in New England had fled the religious laws of Charles I. They were Puritans who couldn't practice their religion in England. Uh, so this was very fertile soil for Cromwellians, uh, both when Cromwell was in power and when he died and these men were on the run. They were shielded and protected by these fundamentalist Puritan settlements in New Haven, Welly and Goff, who remember very senior military officers, both colonels, the most senior people ever to visit this kind of new colony. They drilled the militia and Whaley's talked quite openly about raising an army, perhaps, to stand against the English if they came after them. In New Haven, they didn't want to recognise the authority of the new king. So you see here, more than a century before the American War of Independence, the kind of tensions which would eventually lead to that, which made it very interesting to write about. I mean, America really is the kind of arc in which the Puritan Revolution sails on into the future. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes, of course. I'll read you the uh, a part that uh, right near the beginning of the book, where um, the novel opens with Daniel Gookin, uh, a Puritan settler who has spent the last two years in England working for the Protectorate. He returns in July 1660, just uh, a few months after Charles II has. Uh, come to the throne, and his wife has been waiting with their children for him to return, and uh, he shows up, but he shows up with two strangers. So um, this is from the early part of the book. In the immediate flurry of kisses and embraces, of tears and laughter, of children being tossed into the air and whirled around, the pair of strangers remained throughout politely seated in the back of the cart among the luggage were at first ignored. Daniel Gookin hoisted Nat up onto his shoulders, tucked Dan and Sam under either arm and ran with them around the yard, scattering the chickens, then turned his attention to the shrieking girls. Mary had forgotten how big her husband was, how handsome, how large a presence. She couldn't take her eyes off him. Finally, Gookin set the girls down, placed his hand around her waist, whispered, there are men here you must meet. Don't be alarmed and ushered her towards the cart. Gentlemen, I fear I've plain forgot my manners. Allow me to present my wife, the true prudent Mary, in flesh and blood at last. A pair of weather-beaten, ragged-bearded heads turned to examine her. Hats were lifted to reveal long, matted hair. They wore buff leather overcoats, caked with salt, and high-sided, scuffed brown boots. 
As they stood somewhat stiffly, the thick leather creaked, and Mary caught a whiff of sea and sweat and mildew, as if they'd been fished up from the bed of the Atlantic. Mary, continued Gookin, these are two good friends of mine who shared the crossing with me, Colonel Edward Whaley and his son-in-law, Colonel William Goff. Whaley said, Indeed, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mrs. Gookin. She forced a smile and glanced at her husband. Two colonels? But already he'd withdrawn his hand and was moving to help the pair down from the cart. She noticed how deferential he was in their presence, and how, when they put their feet to the ground after so many weeks of sea, both men swayed slightly and laughed and steadied one another. The children gawked. Colonel Goff, the younger one, said, Let's give thanks for our deliverance. Beneath his beard he had a fine, keen, pious face. His voice carried a musical lilt. He held up his hands, palm flat, and cast his eyes to the heavens. The Gookin family quickly wrenched their fascinated gaze from him and lowered their heads. We remember Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Amen. Amen. And who do we have here? asked Colonel Whaley. He moved along the line of children, collecting their names. At the end, he pointed to each in turn. Mary, Elizabeth, Daniel, Sam, Nathaniel. Very good. I am Ned, and this is Will. Nathaniel said, Did you know the Lord Protector, Ned? I did very well. He's dead, you know. Yes, Nathaniel, that he is, replied Ned sadly, more's the pity. There was a silence. Mr. Gookin clapped his hands. Boys, fetch the colonel's bags for them. Until that moment, Mary Gookin had nursed a hope that her husband had merely offered the men a ride. Now, as she watched them unload their luggage from the cart and hand it to her sons, she felt dismay. It was hardly the homecoming she'd dreamed of, to feed and shelter two senior officers of the English army. And where are we to put them, Daniel? She spoke quietly so they couldn't hear, and took care not to look at him, the easier to keep her temper. The boys can give up their beds and sleep downstairs. And how long are they to stay? As long as it's necessary. What is that, a day, a month, a year? I can't say. And why here? Are there no rooms to be had in Boston? Are colonels too poor to pay for their own beds? The governor believes Cambridge is a safer lodging place than Boston. You've consulted the governor about their accommodation? We've been with him half the day. He gave us dinner. So that was why his journey from Boston had taken him so long. She watched the boys struggling under the weight of the large bags, the two colonels walking behind them towards the house, talking to the girls. To her feelings of dismay and irritation was suddenly added an altogether sharper emotion. Fear. And why, she began hesitantly, why does the governor believe Cambridge is safer than Boston? Because Boston is full of rogues and royalists, whereas here they will be among the godly. They're not visitors from England then, so much as fugitives? He made no answer. From what is it they run? Gookin took a while to reply. By the time he spoke, the men had gone inside. He said quietly, They killed the king. So I've been talking to Robert Harris. We've been talking about his new book, Act of Oblivion, which is out in the UK now from Hutchinson Heinemann. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.